Thank you, Father Simon. It's a real privilege to have been invited to address all of you here on behalf of the School of Canon Law and the uh, Canon Law faculty also here at the Angelicum. So Santa Croce and the Angelicum, um, thank you for the invitation. The title of the talk is The Connection Between Justice, Law, and the Common Good. The concept of use is of critical importance for classical legal theory, and St. Thomas Aquinas' account of use is one of the most important monuments in that legal tradition. The goal of this paper, however, is not to focus exclusively on this Latin term, ius, but rather to step back and to see ius, or the just, or right, in a wider perspective, as a key element of Aquinas' sapiential approach to justice, law, and the common good. And I would underline sapiential approach to try to understand the whole. Indeed, my goal is to place this in Aquinas' wider reflections on human affairs as a whole, and even to his understanding of all things as proceeding from God and returning to God. So my central argument is that jus can only be properly understood as an element in this wider synthesis. We learn from Aquinas that jus always has an implied reference to justice, to law, and the wider framework of order within which an individual necessarily finds himself. Even more importantly, jus cannot be rightly understood, I think. Excuse me. Jus cannot be rightly understood without some implicit reference to the common good, which means that to be valid and just, a rights claim of an individual always must be ordered under the common good. And as we'll see, this Thomistic approach to jus justice, law, and the common good opens the door for us to find solutions to some of these seemingly insoluble problems and perplexities that we encounter in contemporary political and legal theory. So my argument proceeds in four stages, corresponding to the four parts of this paper. In the first part, which I'm actually not going to read for you today, just for reasons of time. The first part summarizes Aquinas's metaphysical grounding of moral discourse and thus of legal and political discourse with respect to the convertibility of being and good and the idea of the good itself. The second part then looks at how the plan of order existing in God's divine mind is the foundation for God's justice and more generally how a plan of order always undergirds justice and law according to Aquinas. In the third part I will examine jus as the object of justice and its relation to the good and then the fourth and final part examines the common good 
and allows us then to see the necessary reference of use and thus of individual rights to the common good. So if time permitted, I would now begin the first part of the argument about the metaphysical grounding of moral discourse. But because our time is limited, I'm going to move directly to the second part about God's plan of order as the foundation of justice. But the two main things that I was going to try to establish and that those who've studied the philosophy of Aquinas will, I think, immediately understand with respect to the first part is that being for Aquinas is convertible with goodness. So insofar as something exists, it is good in some way. Goodness, therefore, has the aspect of perfection or perfectibility. And then a corollary flows from this that knowing, in a sense, comes before willing or loving. Okay, those are the points that I would make in the first part. But if we can take that as given, let's move to part two. God's plan of order as the foundation of justice. The truth that being is convertible with goodness and its corollary that knowing comes before willing or loving, these truths have enormous practical consequences for Aquinas' account of law, justice, and the common good. They mean that even with respect to God's providential plan for the universe, the plan of God's intellect is primary. It comes in the first place. There is a metaphysical foundation for the good and thus also for God's providence over creation, which is to say there is a metaphysical foundation for God's law. And this is the reason why we can say that God is just. Aquinas states this beautifully and succinctly in a capital text from the Prima Pars of the Summa Theologiae, and this is text A on your handout. Aquinas writes, since the object of the will is the good as understood by the intellect, it is impossible that God would will anything but the plan, the ratio, he conceives by his intellect, which is like a law of justice, according to which his will is right and just. Hence, what he does according to his will, he does justly, just as we act justly when we act according to the law. This marvelous text compresses into a few lines the core insights of Aquinas on justice, law, and the common good. God's will follows the plan that God conceives in his intellect. And for that reason, Aquinas thinks, we can say that God's will is just. And that plan in God's mind is, quote, like a law of justice, he says, a law of justice in the divine mind itself. That is to say, it is an ordination of reason for the common good by one who has care of the community, St. Thomas's famous definition of law. So there are three key points that I'd like to draw from this capital text, text A, that I've just quoted. The first point is that God's plan is an ordination of reason. 
In order of logical priority, this divinely ordered plan for creation is first conceived in the intellect of God, and then God carries it out according to his will. Now, we could add some additional qualifications, and Aquinas does in other places. This divine plan includes, of course, God's providence for all things that will occur in the world. As Aquinas explains at the beginning of his treatise on law in the Summa Theologiae, this pre-existing plan of order in the mind of God has the character of a law. Aquinas calls it the eternal law. And this is text B on your handout. Quote, in every governor, there pre-exists a plan of order for all things to be done through those who are subject to his governance. Thus, the plan of divine wisdom moving everything to its due end, has the character of a law. And thus the eternal law is nothing other than the plan of the divine wisdom insofar as it directs every act and motion, end quote. Creation itself and absolutely everything that happens in the world unfolds according to this plan of order conceived in the mind of God. And each thing in creation, every creature, occupies a distinct place in the overarching order of God's divine plan. Everything in creation is governed by God's eternal law. Second point to draw from text A. God's plan, the eternal law, is for the common good. As Aquinas explains elsewhere, Every act of God, extending to the whole creation and the entirety of divine providence, is for the sake of God's own goodness. There's no reason outside of or beyond the goodness of God that explains creation or divine providence. God knows himself and loves himself as perfect being and perfect goodness the source of the being of every creature and the cause of every creaturely perfection. And so God is the supreme common good of the whole universe. He is the cause of its goodness, the ultimate end of all things, and is more lovable in himself than any other thing. What is more, every creature not only has come forth from God, but is also ordered back to God. And in particular, Aquinas underlines that every creature is ordered back to God as each is inclined to the good proportioned to it. There's a beautiful quotation from Aquinas on this point, but for reasons of time, I'm not going to read it to you. But it's worth underlining how the inclination of each creature to the good proper to its nature is for Aquinas another way of expressing how each creature fits into its due place in the overarching order of God's plan. To say that a creature reaches its perfection and thus its proper good amounts to saying that it is rightly ordered in the overarching plan of God according to God's eternal law, rightly ordered with respect to other creatures 
and rightly ordered with respect to God, who is the creature's first cause and also its final end. And this is precisely where Aquinas' teaching on natural inclinations would fit into the picture. It really could be a talk of its own at this conference. That every creature has a natural inclination to its proper good, which, when rightly ordered in the full sense, is a certain participation in the eternal law. And now we've reached the definition of natural law for Aquinas. But we don't have time to delay on this point. I'd like to go back to text A and draw a third point from it. How justice is a function of the first two points I've just mentioned. Even in God, when we're speaking about God's will for creatures, justice implies the conformity of God's will to what is right and just, and thus to the law understood as the intelligible plan of order conceived by God's mind. And so in this sense, justice is always intrinsically connected to the right ordering of things. And it is God who establishes each thing in its being as the kind of thing that it is, existing in an overarching order of all things as they come forth from him and as they return to him. This is a quote from Aquinas, text C on your handout. As the fitting order of a family or of any kind of multitude shows forth the justice of the ruler, so also the order of the whole universe, which is apparent in both natural things and voluntary things, shows forth the justice of God. This means, therefore, that justice always has to do with a right relationship of order. And specifically when we speak of rational creatures, that each person is rightly related to others, under God, within and according to this overarching plan of order. Now, part three of my paper, use, justice, and the common good. So these reflections bring us to the question of use. Aquinas understands jus to be the object of justice or what is due to another. Even or especially when we're speaking of a written law, Aquinas explains, the jus is the intelligible form and measure of a law. In the same way that the artisan's idea of the table he is going to make is the mental exemplar and measure of what the artisan carves in the wood. Or to put it another way, law is a kind of expression of jus. Jus is therefore a way of expressing the pattern of right relationships of things, and especially of rational creatures within a larger plan of order. Aquinas's view of jus is thus the opposite of that held in some contemporary legal theories, which posit that law is primary and that jus, or a right or rights in general, or what is due in a particular case, is a function of law. On this contemporary view, it's the law that establishes or determines the jus in a strong sense. 
Now, this may be true about yus or rights that are based on the positive law, but asserting this too strongly runs the risk of thinking that justice in a wider sense or thinking that natural law or even the eternal law in the mind of God is founded on the will of the lawgiver. It's a kind of form of positive law. For Aquinas, the reverse is true. God's will for creatures follows the plan for creatures conceived in his intellect. And it's the ordering of this wise plan in God's intellect that is the ultimate origin of the use. It's what determines the use. It's not that God's will has set forth this plan. It's that God's mind has conceived the plan and his will then follows that plan. What is more for Aquinas, it then follows that the positive law should always, including the human positive law especially, should always follow, excuse me, now I've lost my place. It follows that the positive law should always be framed in view of this use, which is a function of that overarching plan informing the whole order of creation and shaping the natural inclination of each creature. While a positive law through its particular determinations may also give rise to some new positive use or right, this positive use can never override or stand against, countervene the use grounded in the eternal law and known to us by natural law. Thinking of use in this way brings to light its implied teleology. Yus has an intrinsic connection to the good, especially to the common good. Rendering what is due to another or doing what is just is always perfective. So an example, think of a relationship of commutative justice, an employer paying a laborer. The worker's wage compensates the worker for his labor. In a sense, it makes him whole after he has expended a day of work. What is more, it's morally important for the employer himself to pay the worker what is due. This is a good act, and in a sense, the employer makes himself good, at least he makes himself a good employer, by giving something good to his worker, paying him what is due. The very notion of due here the yus, is not alien to the persons involved. Indeed, it implies a dynamism of those persons toward their perfection and thus toward what is good. We can also think of this yus in terms of a relationship that encompasses both persons and points to a larger plan of order. If the employer fails to pay the due wage, he undermines his relation to the worker. When he later pays what is due, he reestablishes and makes actual a right ordering between the two of them. Now we've arrived at part four, use and the common good. This is the final part of my argument. It's my claim that just as use or a claim of individual right always has an implicit reference to a wider ordering of justice insofar as 
the citizen exists in a wider network of relationships and thus in a wider framework of order, so also a true and valid use always has an implicit reference to the common good. On a theoretical level, therefore, and when rightly understood, a true use will never be in conflict with the common good, nor could it be, because it is in part defined by its ordering to that good. And reciprocally, we could say, it will never be consistent with the common good to deny or withhold the true use of an individual, nor could it be. Now, this does not mean that in practice, we will never find individual rights claims coming into conflict with assertions of the common good. There are many reasons why this is so. Sin has darkened our minds and disordered our loves so that we often do not know what truly pertains to the common good or what is due to another. And often we do not love and seek to promote these things because of our selfish and disordered desires. What is more, given the limits of our finite minds, it can sometimes be hard for a virtuous person to determine precisely with respect to the situation here and now, what is the use and what is the common good? So we should expect conflicting claims to arise. And we should expect that judges, governors, and political systems will have difficult questions to resolve. But at the same time, we can be confident that such a resolution is at least theoretically possible. And in fact, that is what our legal and political systems should be seeking. Time does not permit, unfortunately, a detailed investigation of Aquinas' account of the common good. It's a major subject in its own right. But what I'd like to do now is to bring into view at least some of the features that support the claim that I've just been making about the relationship between use and the common good. The first feature of the common good I'd like to bring up is the distinction, and it's a very important distinction, between particular goods and a truly common good. To summarize, a particular good cannot be participated in or shared in by many at the same time, at least not in a proper sense. <clears throat> so a family may share a loaf of bread by dividing it up, but two people cannot eat the same piece of bread. The piece of bread remains a particular good, even if it, even if it is owned by the community, because a piece of bread is the sort of thing that can only be used or enjoyed by an individual. In contrast, the common good is communicable to many without being diminished. It is formally shareable or communicable. It's something that can be participated in. Thus, the harmony of a family or the justice of a city can be shared in by every member of the family or of the city without 
being diminished in any way by that sharing. This means that the common good is a higher, more noble, and more universal good than a particular good. We might ask, what makes a truly common good to be common? So let me spend a, a moment on that point. Aquinas gives the answer that a truly common good is common to many, is shared in by many, insofar as it is an end. For example, the common good of an army is victory. That's what the army is aiming at. Victory is an extrinsic common good. It's an end that lies outside the army itself. And this then requires that the army be well-ordered, well-ordered internally. That's an intrinsic common good, a good internal to the army itself, which is for the sake of victory, the extrinsic end. Each soldier in a victorious army shares in these ends, but the ends were not divided up and handed out to individuals to enjoy separately. They are the armies as a whole, and they belong to each soldier insofar as he belongs to the army. Next point, Aquinas also speaks about the common good as a cause. The common good is a cause that, while remaining one, extends its effects to many. So the army's victory is one. It's not an aggregation of many individual victories. And the army's victory causes every soldier to be victorious. What is more for Aquinas, a higher and nobler common good will be a more powerful and more powerfully self-diffusive good. So thinking about the common good in this way helps us to avoid two typical errors about the common good. The first error is to think that the common good is a collection of particular goods owned by the community. Such a view, very common in our time, flattens the common good into an aggregation of particular goods. Now, while it's true that we often speak of goods held in common as common goods, using the plural, they're goods that are common, this is different from the common good taken in the proper sense. So to give an example, a city might own a warehouse filled with medical supplies held in case of emergency. But these goods, though owned in common, are not themselves shareable in by many. Even though the state might own quite a lot of such things and might hand them out to citizens in acts of distributive justice, this does not make those particular things to be common in the most proper sense. The truly common good is something of a higher order than a particular good, and further, it is likewise more self-diffusive. And it helps us see, then, the hierarchical nature of common goods. And this is perhaps the important point to draw from this. Common goods are not per se or directly competitive 
with private goods. That's because they're goods of a higher or nobler order. So having acquired that insight now, we can recognize a second error about the common good. To think that the common good does not properly belong to the individual, or even to think that the common good could be hostile to the good of the individual. This is an especially dangerous mistake, especially for our present inquiry, since it is often presupposed in contemporary legal theory that individual rights and the common good are chronically in tension. On this contemporary view, individual rights are asserted by a citizen over against the state, and thus over against the common good. And thus, if someone prioritizes the common good, it will necessarily follow that individual rights are neglected or are even being suppressed or abandoned. This is a serious mistake from Aquinas' perspective because the common good is itself also the good of the individual. The individual shares in the common good. Indeed, if the common good were not the good of individuals, it would not truly be a common good. The common good is not like a particular good which cannot be participated in. And the common good is not per se in competition with the particular goods of individuals when those particular goods are rightly ordered in a larger whole. So a negative example helps bring this to light. I'm choosing a rather American example, a basketball team, but this is an international Olympic sport, so I hope some of you are at least a little bit familiar with the example. So a basketball team, what is its common good? Victory. Now it sometimes happens that a player on a basketball team plays selfishly. In American English, we call it being a ball hog. The ball hog, the selfish player, keeps the ball. He shoots it too often himself. He refuses to pass the ball to a teammate who has a better shot. Now, you might say his statistics, his particular good, may at the end of the game look better because he scored more points. But if his team loses the game, if his team loses the championship because of his selfish play, that player also loses. So to pursue his particular good of scoring extra points, when it is done in a way not ordered under the common good of the team, that is the victory of the team, makes him a bad player. And it deprives him and his whole team of that higher and nobler common good of the championship. So this brings to light a further key feature of the common good. Because it's a good of a higher and nobler sort, it provides the basis on which to order and arrange the pursuit of the lower and particular goods that fall in its domain. So to go back to our example, the coach of the basketball team will direct his players about how quickly, how often to shoot the ball. And the good player will desire to score points only as ordered 
to his team's victory and will listen to the coach's directions. To put this back into more abstract terms, individuals should pursue their particular goods in a way that is rightly ordered to that higher good. And those who have rightly ordered loves will do this freely. They will do it out of love for the higher good, which of itself is more lovable. The championship is more lovable than good statistics for me. In fact, Aquinas says that a person who does not freely order his loves to the higher good has a disordered will. Of course, that happens all the time that we have disordered wills, but we can begin to understand how to resolve the conflict if we have rightly ordered desires, a rightly ordered appreciation of the hierarchy of goods. Notice that what we're going to ask the basketball player to do, or each of us as a citizen to do, is not purely a matter of deontological duty or of moral obligation. From Aquinas' perspective, to refer particular goods, at least implicitly, to the common good, and to love particular goods not as absolute ends, but as relative goods in view of what is higher, for Aquinas, this is the only reasonable way for a person to behave. Particular goods are like means, and the common good is an end. If a person has both the right perception of his situation and a rightly ordered will, he will love the common good more than his particular goods. And all things being equal, he will freely choose and prefer only the particular goods that promote or at least are compatible with the common good. And he won't do this because he's commanded to do it. He won't do it under duress. He will do it freely because from Aquinas' perspective, the higher common good is more lovable in itself. And so when it's known and when we pay attention to it, it draws out of us a higher love, a greater love that relativizes the attraction of lower particular goods. Of course, St. Thomas is keenly aware that fallen human beings often do prefer lower goods to higher ones. And this is most evident in the fact that we prefer lower goods to God. That's one way to describe sin. And Aquinas' treatment of how our loves go wrong is complex and nuanced. It's not something that we can address in this talk, but we can at least now begin to see how to think about it. I'd also like to underscore that having a greater love for the common good is not per se contrary to loving particular goods or loving other individuals. Aquinas speaks about a hierarchical ordering of loves. One loves higher things more and lower things as ordered to the higher, or at least as not contrary to the higher. So we can look at text D on your handout. Aquinas writes, quote, 
It pertains to love, to the love which should exist among men. Excuse me, I think there's a typo there. It pertains to the love which should exist among men that one should seek and preserve the good of even a single man. We should love the particular good of an individual. But it is much better and more divine that this love be shown for the whole nation and for many cities, end quote. Loving the common good does not mean ceasing to love particular goods or particular persons, but it does mean loving them in an ordered way. There is an order of love which depends on the wider order in which things exist. And having just spoken after Father Sherwin, maybe I should now say he's the great expert on uh, Aquinas on charity and the order of loves. And so in his presence, I tremble to say much on this subject. But I would only say that I don't think Aquinas necessarily means here that we're in the order of supernatural charity immediately. He thinks that this is also operative on the natural level. The natural loves that we have for goods can be rightly ordered in this way. And of course, charity is going to perfect that in the supernatural order. It's going to help us actually be rightly ordered to God as our friend. But we can understand it even in the order of natural loves. Okay, now, having done all of this work about the common good, let's return to yus and its relation to the common good. And I hope you can see where I'm going here. The yus of an individual or an individual's right can be thought of like a particular good. It's a genuine good. But it is not an absolute good or an absolute claim. Rather, to be truly just, a claim of use. Yesterday we were talking about objective and subjective use. There's a way to think about it in both, both ways here, but I'm assuming that we can rightly speak of a subjective use in the sense uh, that we heard from Father uh, Thierry yesterday in a subjective way, but always remembering that the objective is primary. An individual claim of use is a genuine good, but it's not absolute. To be truly just, it must be referred to the common good. It must be ordered under the common good. Yus always has an implicit reference to justice and to the common good. And so we can conclude from that that rights are always a function of the ordered relationship that a human person always exists in, beginning as a member of a family, of a neighborhood, of a city, and extending to a person's membership in a nation or the whole body of Christ or the whole creation under God. These relationships are not purely conventional. They're not purely arbitrary. Every person enters the world as a member of a family, of a city, of a nation, of a creature under God. Importantly, I think, we can also look at this relationship from the opposite perspective, starting with the yus. Where there is a true and valid yus, it follows that respecting and promoting it will be an aspect of the common good. A ruler is given care of the common good, but a ruler is the steward of that good, not its master. So the common good of a city, justice, requires that its citizens be treated justly, 
and that their legitimate rights be respected. No city promotes its authentic common good by depriving its citizens of their use. Now, it's easy to say this in an abstract way and at a high level of generality. It's more difficult to determine what is due and what the common good requires in individual cases. So this is where the practice of politics and the work of judging, the work of the law, uh, really, as, as we would say in American English, it's where the rubber meets the road. This is text E on your handout. Aquinas puts it this way. Practical reason has to do with contingent things like human actions. And hence, although we find necessity in the general principles, the more we descend to individual cases, the more we find that things go astray. And even when there is the same rectitude in individual cases, it is not equally known to all, end quote. So Aquinas is identifying in this text two problems that come up with the judging of individual cases. The first problem is that contingent details sometimes qualify or condition how the general principles should be applied here and now. And the second problem is that even when the right answer should be clear to us, theoretically, our knowledge of it is sometimes obscure. And as we know from elsewhere in Aquinas' writings, it's harder for a vicious person to see the right answer. This is text F. Aquinas explains, since in some reason is corrupted by passion or by bad habits or by a bad disposition of nature. For example, although theft is expressly against the natural law, Julius Caesar recounts that the Germans once thought it was not wrong. End quote. Let me conclude by, by replying to an objection about the abuse of the common good. So the objection would go like this. It seems that states and rulers often suppress individual rights and destroy or confiscate individual goods in the name of the common good. So if the state is the ultimate arbiter of the common good, then individuals are likely to suffer injury to their rights. In such a view, wouldn't it then follow that we need individual rights to stand over against the common good, to limit the power of the state, to prevent abuses like this? Now, in a sense, we could say we see the point of this objection. We should try to arrange political authority so as to constrain public officials from abusing their power. And we know that that's a constant temptation for human beings. Systems of checks and balances can be quite effective for accomplishing this. What is more, there is an objective dimension to the common good. And this is, I think, one of the important points that I want to underline. A public official, although given care of the common good, does not have the power to make injustice to be just, nor to make the suppression of someone's genuine use to be a part of the common good. 
At the same time, we now see individual rights cannot be regarded as absolute either. In order to be just, and of course that's the claim in Aquinas, we're talking about a jus. In order to be just, they must somehow be referred or referable to the common good. And in any case, in the end, of course, rights claims need to be enforced by someone. And whomever is charged with that task really does need to refer those claims back to the common good. And I think if we understood it rightly, we would realize that this is precisely what judges and what other governors and rulers are doing all the time. St. Thomas Aquinas helps us see that when conflicts between claims of individual rights and the common good arise, these always are going to involve some obscurity about the use at issue or the common good or both. And thus some ignorance, error, or even selfish malice may enter into the human work of seeking justice. But it is never in the service of the common good to do an injustice and rights claims are claims that certain acts could work an injustice with respect to me. If we always remember that we need to reformulate claims to subjective rights or subjective use in terms of justice and the common good, then the theoretical problem about a perceived conflict between rights and the common good begins to go away. Practical questions, of course, will remain. Given our imperfect knowledge of what leads a community to its common good and what is owed to individuals here and now. But at least in theory, we should be confident that there are no impossibly insoluble conflicts between individual rights and the common good. Because rights claims, rightly understood, are functions of justice and the common good itself. Thank you very much. <laughs>